It's Louis Holbrook's last day at the Taxpayers' Union. Uh, it's been about five years since I approached him uh, when he became available just after the 2017 general election. What, 200 newsletters later, countless stunts and being a pain in the ear to the Labour government. You're off um, to South America, we'll get into that. But I thought it was a good opportunity to, instead of you welcoming someone to Taxpayer Talk, welcome to Taxpayer Talk, Louis. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs> it's it's almost surreal to think that it's been five years. On one hand, the time has absolutely flown uh, because it's been so much fun and I've been so busy. On the other hand, to think back about all the different projects that we've worked on together, all the different examples of government waste and fraudulent behaviour we've exposed, the fact we could fit that into just five years, it, it really does blow my mind. So I'm, I'm bloody proud of uh, what we've achieved together in the last five years. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and you've certainly grown... Uh, actually, I'll, I'll start with the... Um, I want to give you a ribbing on a couple of things, but I'll, I'll, okay. I'll start with... <laughs> As will not surprise you. You realise this goes um, both ways. <laughs> Fair enough. This is our exit yeah, interview yeah, like, and it's being recorded yeah. live. <laughs> the, the, it became pretty clear after only a few years that if I was hit by a bus, you could step into my shoes. And as a um, founder or co-founder of an organisation, that's kind of where you want to get to, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I've got, very, although you've um, expressed pretty clearly you're not at all interested in my job, um, the fact that you could do it, um, I think, says a lot of, in terms of how far you'll come too, because people are stunned with how young you are, Louis. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 28, but to be fair, Jordan, how old were you when you started the Taxpayers' Union? 27, I started Exactly, it. yeah. So, so if anyone's the freak here, it's, it's you, Jordan, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> All right. We can, we, we, luckily, we still get to edit this while after you've left on um, on Monday. We've obviously got um, the sort of formal drinks, and if you are a um, a member or a financial supporter of the Taxpayers Union, don't hesitate to come along on um, on Tuesday night. Um, but I know that we've got a lot of um, friends and foes looking at some of the um, uh, the RSVPs and some of the uh, Labour politicians yeah. that have... I was just on the phone with the Green Party chief of staff of all people and I suggested that he uh, he show up. He didn't explicitly say no, but we'll see. <laughs> I, I, of course, you came on after the change of government because for us, we sort of our business model didn't really change much, but getting, I remember getting back into the country just after Winston Peters picked to go with Labour and that presumably would have been just the time I was touching base with you, and being in this parallel universe where the National Party was sort of talking to us and, and you know, suggesting, why don't you come down to Parliament and we'll, we'll have a meeting, and suddenly all these Labour MPs, um, Stuart Nash being a great example, had written forwards for us and stuff, suddenly aren't, aren't, aren't returning calls or text messages anymore. It was, so you've only sort of seen it from the Labour yeah. side. Um, but let me step back. What first got you into politics? Uh, it's actually a bit of a funny one. Obviously, I'm, I'm still young, uh, and by definition, I was young when I was interested in politics uh, first. And it was probably in high school when I was entering university, and I was thinking about I was thinking about the protests related to student loans and student fees. These university students squealing that they were somehow the victims because they had to pay just a portion of the cost of their taxpayer-funded education. And to me, that was absurd. In no universe were those university students, my fellow university students, in no universe were they the underprivileged. They were not the victims. 
And yet they claimed to believe in, in social justice, but what they were asking for was a subsidy for a group of New Zealanders that we know are disproportionately privileged and likely to earn more across the course of their lives. To me, that was hypocritical, and I guess I was a bit of a contrarian. It certainly wasn't in my self-interest to advocate for interest on student loans or to advocate for higher fees, but honestly, I thought that was the right position. So it was, I, I guess it was talking to some of the youth wings on campus uh, that I realised this debate was such a big one, and I decided to take the side of what I thought was the side of the angels, uh, which I guess is a position that the Taxpayers' Union would still support today. Indeed. You then studied journalism, and I've heard you explain it a few times, but I, I really want to get it on tape, about that, because a lot of our supporters sort of, hang on, why has the media changed so much? But you say that journalism is now taught not necessarily just to find truth, but to find virtue. Well, absolutely. Advocacy journalism is entwined through, at, le at the very least, the communications course that I took. I remember as part of my communications course, we studied uh, Nikki Hager's The Hollow Men you know, as, a, as a case study. Uh, and at the same time... Oh, principled of balanced. Sure, yeah. and that was obviously yeah, a, a right. documentary, you know, ripping into the Don Brash years mm. of the National Party. Uh, at the same time, clearly, all of the tutors were left-wing. Uh, I actually don't think that in itself is a problem. Uh, but all the, all the students weren't necessarily critical, and it was because they were young, and you should expect that at university, that people do swallow what they're fed. Uh, and unfortunately, it just entrenched what I think were existing leftish certainly leftish, liberalish ideas of these students to the point where after three years through the university ringer, it's actually a wonder I came out right-wing, but somehow I did. <laughs> so then went um, David Seymour's, straight to being David Seymour's press secretary? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I was really lucky to get that job because, I mean, you can do the maths, I was, um, I was barely 20 uh, when I got that role. Wow, working in Parliament. Yeah, and working for an undersecretary as well. So yeah. I was I was working on government policy uh, around charter schools and regulatory reform. I say working on policy, I was working on the, com the communication surrounding the policy, so perhaps it wasn't as big a responsibility in that sense. Uh, but I found three years in Parliament, it was, it was intoxicating and it was addictive, uh, but it was quite miserable and you get really, really sucked into whatever's on the parliamentary agenda and it can disconnect you from the real concerns of the people that make your work possible. Uh, in the case of Parliament, it's taxpayers. I was, I was a taxpayer-funded employee. Uh, but here at the Taxpayers' Union, the big shift is that I am accountable to 180,000 New Zealanders who subscribe to our newsletters and the thousands of those who chip in yeah. $10, $100, $1,000. And I listen to their concerns. I have to because they make my work possible. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. Um, I mean, that was the highlight of the to go out soon after the roadshow. It's so cool because it it was just so humbling to have you know the name every town, the names you recognise that you know have been chipping in for a while, yeah. and saying you know I'm X, Y, and Z. And it was a, it was a fantastic way to finish up my role. Uh, I was originally planning to head off six weeks earlier, so in hindsight, it's actually a really special uh, and good thing that I could extend that to participate in uh, the Invercargill to Nelson leg of the roadshow and then to Blenheim and then up to the Northern leg as well. And Your home turf. Yeah, well, I'm from Walkworth originally, um, so it was good to be in that part of the country, Mangafai, Kerry, Kerry, Whangarei, meeting so many of the supporters who regularly respond to my newsletters. I often read their messages to me. I don't usually have the chance to reply to all of them, 
But on this roadshow, I was meeting people who had been emailing me for years. And yeah. I was finally able to say thank you. Yeah, like, likewise. So we've obviously given you, um, and I've had instances of this too, where we, um, we have other passions outside the wheelhouse of the Taxpayers Union. Now that you're not, um, uh, you can go off message. <laughs> and you and I have sat in this room and uh, there's a, a question we ask every single potential employee or student intern. And it is if you had one, if you had the hands on the levers of power for the, for a day, or if you were prime minister for a day, and you could change one policy, what would it be? And of course, mm. for, as you know, Louis, it's not. It doesn't matter what it is. It's that we want to test the sort of depth of the thinking and the like. I've just given away the answers. If if if, if anyone listens to this, he replies for job with the taxpayers union. But I can now ask you that and get a sure. get an answer that Jordan won't be coming saying, "Oh, <laughs> Louis, <laughs> that causes problems." Yeah, um, a top tax rate of ninety eight percent. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I do have an answer to that question, and I don't think it's something I've actually spoken to you about. Uh, obviously, I've got my little pet peeves, but mm. my big one, if I did have my hands on the lever of power for a day, it would be to do with the education system. Specifically, I would like to see a comprehensive voucher system in education. What that means is, you can imagine right now, uh, we fund schools. Or we Specifically, we fund public schools, government schools. Mm. Uh, I think we instead should be funding students and their parents so that they can choose a school that best fits their needs. Because what really disturbs me about the education system in New Zealand is, while it's easy to be complacent, maybe it's better than average in some regards, there is no diversity of ideas, there is no real competition, and that is what leads to complacency, and that is what leads to firstly failing standards, but also a conformity, uh, not just in what you know, but the way you think. So when the government, for example, is talking about fiddling around with the history curriculum, that gives me the GBs, and I think it, it should give everyone the GBs, because that's how we lose the diversity of debate. That is really fundamental uh, to our country's future to our society. Yeah, yeah. Well, and all, I mean, it's not just that it, it ties you into any particular worldview, but it ties you also into your neighbourhood. I mean, that's the sad thing in Auckland that um, when you you know we've obviously got a, a young, um, growing family, and that the school zone is pr- is probably our you know top priority in terms of what well it limits us to what suburbs we want to. Um, we want to look to. Yeah, and you you even see it reflected in the housing market. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I mentioned, I, well, you mentioned I worked for David Seymour. I became somewhat familiar with Epsom issues, and it is bizarre the way that double grammar zone in Auckland. Um, you know, you, you it can add a hundred or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars onto the price of your property, and it's arbitrary. These are lines that bureaucrats have drawn. Yeah, it doesn't need to be that way. And yet, it's the it, it is to protect presumably the failing schools that we have this system, and yet, I mean, in health, for example, um, Andrew Little likes to talk a lot about the lot, the um, postal postcode lottery for health. Well, in schools, it's so much worse. Yeah. You remember with the charter school program, which is, formally that's been shut down, but uh, at the time that was running, there was one charter school that closed, and there was a huge uproar from the left saying, look, this shows why the whole model is broken. But wait a minute, that was a failing school that closed down. When do you ever hear about failing schools closing down in the public sector? It just doesn't happen. They, they are allowed, in fact, they are subsidised 
with more funding to linger on and on. You mentioned uh, pet peeves and you knew what I was hinting at yep. with that. Daylight savings. I've got more stick from donors. I remember one of our founding donors that got us off the ground at the beginning, um, a knight called me incredibly annoyed as I think his words were, why the F um, are you getting into daylight savings? For which we, I assured him we were not. It concerns me how many donors might have thought we were but never called. <laughs> um, go on, in, in, in 30 seconds, why is daylight savings your die on the hill pet peeve? I'm going to give you a terrible answer. And that's that I don't have to defend my position. The onus of explanation is on the people who intrude on my life twice a year and fiddle around with my clock, whether it be on my iPhone or telling me to change the clock on my fridge or my microwave as if I know how. So th th this is government intervention. Time right lords, you call them. Yeah, they are time lords. They think that they run my personal schedule. And it, to me, it's, it's bizarre how we all go along with it because we know that daylight saving does not actually save daylight. Uh, it just adds inconvenience. It stresses out uh, parents with young kids. It stresses out the dairy cows. People crash their cars on the road because of lack of sleep. Computer programmers can't get the times to match up, especially across time zones. It's amazing we don't have a Y2K situation twice a year. So, so you've made these very messages, these very talking points on uh, Seven Sharp. And I don't know, I'll, I'll ask you this, you might have a different view, but I think the, the media highlight in your five years would have to be, was it the first time you did the Jonesies or was it the second time? I think it was, I think it was I your th first. I think it was the first time that I yeah. did it. Uh, so, yeah, that's right, because, um, uh, yeah, that's right, Zo um, Zoe was due and we were concerned that if I, um, that if I had to rush off to Auckland um, uh, for, a, for a newborn that I might have to pull out at the last minute for the Jonesies. So you had I'd somehow twisted your arm to, that you were doing the Jonesies this year. And we'd lined up Seven Sharp as the exclusive, and actually the coverage was unbelievable. I think we had the first six minutes of Seven Sharp going through every single award of government waste. But Louis, you came to me the day before and said, uh, I've been asked to be the feature guest, the first interview in Seven Sharp tonight. The same episode. On, on, on was it? <laughs> on Daylight Savings. And... They were going to interview you, uh, and somehow in the next story, you were also. No, I'm pretty sure it was the next night. It was. It was you were the first story on like the Wednesday night, and then we were set to be the first story the Thursday night. Yeah. We should clarify for the listeners. So the daylight saving thing. The reason they were approaching me is because I started up this Twitter account called Take Back the Clocks, totally separate from the Taxpayers' <laughs> Union. But I'm the, sure you didn't use our, use our but, computer for that. Yeah, the, the media might not have cottoned on immediately that it, the Louis Holbrook from Take Back the Clocks was the same <laughs> Louis Holbrook from the Taxpayers' Union. It wasn't until I had to explain it to these poor Seven Sharp producers um, that they realised they were going to have the same person on two nights in a row and that, that didn't gel with them but luckily they were able to salvage the piece uh, because we had a, um, a nice uh, young woman who shared the spokesperson duties for the Jonesy Awards That's right. and she could take centre stage. We might as well say her, and, and her mother's now a Labour MP which we're very, <laughs> very which she was a uh, one of our best student interns um, uh, in, in, in our time. Uh, well of course we should mention to be balanced that a group of staff, um, I think partly, in fact I know, to wind you up, also created a competing 
Twitter account, and I I can't remember if it was called Time for Change or Change the Time, <laughs> but the the not to be confused with Take Back the Clocks. We obviously are, it's you know we're generalists here because we're you know we do set the agenda on things like Three Waters and things like that in our big campaigns, but a lot of our sort of skirmishes are you know we're reacting to the agenda of the day. What's your best sort of campaign moment or stunt uh, or sort of thing we've put together quickly that, that, that you can recall? Well, I guess there, there's, there are stunts and then there are campaign victories. If I think of stunts, uh, well, there was a stunt that translated to a campaign victory and the bang for buck when I think about it uh, blows my mind. And that was quite recent. It was the fuel tax refunds that we gave out. That's so right. this is when um, you gave me permission <laughs> to withdraw $5,000 of our donor's money from an ATM and then hand it out in cash at a petrol station, uh, refunding people for the tax they paid on their petrol uh, and letting them know that they were paying more than 50% of the bill in tax. Uh, at the time, I was pretty nervous about what our donors would think uh, mm. because I was giving away their money in cash. You know, People say, we don't believe in handouts. I was giving out handouts. <laughs> but uh, to make the point, you know, the, the, the ob- I remember that, meeting we decided to do that it was objective was to get that 52 percent factoid across to the media and the public and uh, we of course had those crate stickers that we were selling and asking people respectfully to please not put those I did this Jacinda Ardern pointing stickers on the petrol pumps but we needed to get that 52 percent across yeah and that night well, News Hub carried it uh, on their 6pm bulletin. Yeah. One News carried the clips later of, of New Zealanders responding yeah. to the, you know, uh, react, reacting in shock to the knowledge of how much tax they were paying. And even RNZ, you know, our publicly funded uh, broadcaster. The, the they stewards of conservative to. media coverage <laughs> in New Zealand. I don't, I don't think they'd planned to cover it, but what happened, out of sheer coincidence, was that their, uh, one of their Auckland journalists happened to be driving past when we were giving away these fuel tax refunds, they saw the queue yeah. of cars outside the petrol station and they realised something's going on here. We better investigate. And next thing you know, we were on, we're um, on checkpoint, checkpoint yeah. at 5.30. That's right. I knew that it... I, I knew it had gone well when... Because uh, you were talking to the media and I'd gone down, had to decide like, which is the last car when we were going to cut it off because... Funnily enough, when you're giving away cash, it doesn't take long for word to spread, and there was a queue of traffic down the road. And as I was sort of gesturing to people, you know, sorry, you know, it's, it's finished. And a chap wound down his window, and I thought he was going to be grumpy with me. And he said, um, and, he, and I said, sorry, sir, it's, um, we're done with the, the hour's over. We need to um, wind it up, and that's the last car over there. And he said, oh, wait, 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 with the media there. And I said, yeah, yeah, media were there. He said, who, who? I said, oh, no, One News, News Hub, Radio New Zealand are there. He said, great! And if we're talking bang for buck, that's the first <laughs> result, right? That airtime that we got from, yeah. that, from that one hour of work, yeah. uh, you, you could barely put a, lot a price of, on that. There was but a lot of effort did, went into that because be, you all came to Auckland. It would be ten times the five grand we spent at least. Oh, at least. And but, <laughs> but it was more that there was a... Um, and I subsequently learned, because he actually emailed me, that it was a, a donor from the North Shore, had seen our email, driven down there, and it wasn't the disappointment that he missed out on the 60 bucks refund, you know, typical tank of gas. It was that he could see what we were doing and it sort of broken that sort of barrier and wanted us to get that message across. Yeah. And I, th- I think our supporters, they, they get it. 
because we're pretty upfront in the way that we do things in our newsletter. Uh, we're not just a protest group. We actually do want to be featured in mainstream media because our job is to insert taxpayer voices yeah. and taxpayer messages into the stories of the day. And it doesn't matter whether the media is left-wing or woke or politically correct. We need to get our voice in there. Uh, and the way we do that is by making ourselves impossible to ignore. And obviously in that case, we got a policy victory out of it. Uh, yeah. The government well, the... did cut fuel tax. Uh, in fact, we found out later that they threw together that policy in just a few days following our stunt. So that was, I think, a $500 million tax cut. Well, of course, we're gonna, they're going to roll it over again and again because we're going you know, <laughs> to rinse and repeat. But that's... Um, that's okay. I mean, and that again in the last um, what what a year to sort of um, to bookend yeah. um, your time here. The um, single most outrageous piece of government waste that you've uncovered. What's well, not necessarily size, but only pl- one. <laughs> well, go Come for your on. life. Go on. <laughs> uh, okay, let me rattle through. Um, the Film Commission spend, spending $1.6 million bribing the producers of Power Rangers oh, that's right. to mention oh, New man. Zealand on their TV show uh, <laughs> and, and mention a Pavlova in their script. That, well, that somehow Kiwi honoured it. Yeah, that yeah. made it Kiwi somehow. Uh, Auckland Council spending, I think it was $91,000 uh, on a goat cull that killed zero goats. <laughs> so I guess it was a vegan goat cull. Um, in fairness on that. Goats are very hard to hunt. Yes. Although $91,000, you'd think you'd get some expert hunters. Yes, they're, they're also famously quiet and, and have mottled green camouflaged skin. <laughs> uh, a random one, Ica. You know Ica, the environmental agency um, that is always running annoying climate change ads on TV. Mm. They spent, uh, I think it was $35,000 installing electric car charges oh, on yeah. the Inter-Islander. What is the Inter-Islander fuel again? How is that fueled? Bunker oil. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's yeah, right. so so you're basically charging your car um, by burning bunker oil, and you probably couldn't think of a less environmentally friendly way of doing it. A diesel truck would be a better idea, but that was our environmental agency fear. Two, two more I'll mention. Um, this one was a real classic because it was a lot of money, and to be fair, it was one of these cases of good intentions that just didn't match up with reality. It was the COVID response where Chris Hipkins decided to spend... $87 million on internet modems for school kids. Because his idea was, oh, all these students will be learning at home. They need the internet. It turns out that most households already have the internet. Uh, but no, he shipped out thousands of these modems to schools, including Auckland Grammar, which received more than 100 of them. And there are photos of these internet modems, $87 million worth, just stacked up in principal's offices across the country. And the kicker was that one was even sent out uh, to Mike Hosking's child. Mike Hosking was deemed worthy of a free taxpayer-funded internet modem. And that was $87 million. We've talked about your biggest victory, um, the outrageous waste. What's been your, your biggest F-up? Oh, I wouldn't admit to my biggest F-ups on a, um, on a recorded podcast. I won't tell anyone. <laughs> I could admit to some small ones. Uh, let's see. Certainly a few times that I've fallen on the wrong side of public opinion. Uh, Oh, I can give you lots of examples on that. Yeah, yeah. and Animals. Animals. (laughs) Actually, let's go there. Animals. (laughs) Why why do you... Okay. The amount of hate I got about your... Was was it the orca first or the penguin? I think the hate came from the orca whale. 
Okay, so you paint the pic. You need to get the gun to the oh, background. Well, yeah, yeah. So it was probably six months ago. It was here in Wellington. No, it was, it was longer than that. Okay. It would be last year. Yeah, here in Wellington, there was a, a baby orca whale. And when a baby orca whale... Uh, turns up in the capital. You can be you can be guaranteed that there's going to be some taxpayer money thrown at it, and that's what happened because this this um, unfortunate confused animal was separated from its orphan. Pod. Yeah, it was an orphan, uh, and it was stranded on some rocks. And then uh, the Department of Conservation got involved, and there was a huge circus where they made a pen for it. And well, were, a pen's a bit generous. It was a power rubber yeah, pull. Yeah, a little a little rubber orca whale pull. Um, and they were shipping in staff from across the country, mm. international experts to care for this thing. We had a workshop got involved to make an orca whale teat. Uh, the money involved was was incredible. Uh, and but it was <laughs> so... The experts was so, there were... There was some experts coming out, calling out the obvious that this is cruel, what, we, what, yes. what they're doing. Orca whales... Baby orca whales don't survive uh, by themselves. It didn't take me much research to make that calculation. Uh, unfortunately... Well, fortunately, it depends on what you think. I decided that it was the taxpayers' union's job to be uh, the one voice in the room pointing out the fact that this whale, um, <laughs> this whale's future wasn't looking good. <laughs> and that maybe for the sake of the whale, and open brackets, the taxpayer, close brackets, uh, maybe we should be considering uh, some kind of, I don't want to say final solution. For <laughs> what? It was. I can't remember if it was a, just a tweet that went wild or a, or, or a press release where you said that there should be a policy not to name these animals. Oh, that's where it was wrong. They, yeah, yeah. they gifted it a name, Toa, Toa the Orca Whale. As soon as you name something, you become attached. And when you're a government agency and you're attached to something, that means there is no end to what you spend. Okay, what about the penguin then? What was the story with the penguin? Well, firstly, I should mention I was bloody lucky that Toa did die because if Toa got better... <laughs> Um, the, oh, the penguin was before my time, but the penguin is relevant because the penguin inspired my interest in the animal stories. <laughs> so this was Happy Feet the Penguin back in 2011, and I was probably 17 at the time. So these were my formative years. I see, okay. So Happy Feet... So um, there is a rationale around yes, this. Yes, happy, happy Feet made me the man I am today. <laughs> so Happy Feet was the emperor penguin that uh, turned up on Pekka Pekka Beach, uh, which is not known for being hospitable to emperor penguins who usually live in Antarctica. And this, this penguin was a dumb bird. Uh, <laughs> it not only got badly, badly lost, but... Do you, it, do you have any animals? I hope not. Uh, I, li- I like cats. Okay. I like cats. Oh, uh, no, Louie. But oh, this penguin no. had eaten sand and had to have its uh, stomach pumped, uh, which apparently cost $30,000 um, to pump its stomach and wow. to nurse it back to health. And this was months oh, They sent it to Wellington Hospital. Yeah, yeah, Wellington Hospital. No, Wellington Zoo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Months, months. Actually, actually, I didn't know that. But there was talking, the guys were saying this morning. Did you once? Did you once? No, I, did, su- I didn't tell you about this. I, I plan to keep it um, quiet from you. But yeah, I did once suggest to Wellington City Council they could pay off their debts by selling the zoo animals. Uh, have you ever wondered that maybe would be more popular if you didn't sort of take on the animal lobby? Oh, someone's got to do it. <laughs> It was, the, the crux of the Happy Feet story was that after spending all that money, we put a tracker on him, set him free, and he was munched by a, an orca whale, of all things. <laughs> the thing is, Tula, is that, see, the, Louis is, Louis is, you've got the, you've got the best sense of humour, but you always deliver it with a straight, 
straight face. When I, told, when I told the Wellington City Councillors, this was in a face-to-face admission, that they could consider selling off the zoo animals, I was met with a stony silence unlike I've ever seen before. And I, I had to clarify that I was making a joke, but the, the point was... But, it is, they, but you deliver it so well because you, you never break character. It's yeah. so good. Well, they should have been considering everything on the table. That was my point. All right. Um, for the record... Have you ever been porky? No, I have. Oh. Oh, have you? I have been porky in a single still photo. Uh, Okay. I think we're breaking the rules here by talking about the mechanics of porky. Yeah, breaking the fourth dimension. There is a photo of porky um, holding a champagne bottle after the capital gains tax. Was that you? Well, you'll notice that I'm not in the photo. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a bunch of interns. So the listeners can make deductions. Okay. All right, then. Well, I just want you to recall that I've not been porky. That was where I was going Ah, with that. Because you'd be... You, you can attest to that. Um, the biggest sort of the biggest victory we've had. I think I just mentioned it, and that was what warranted Porky holding the champagne uh, bottle, and that was that was that day that you and I went yeah, down right. to the Beehive Theatreette to hear the Prime Minister's update on her capital gains tax proposal. That's right. And we thought that we thought she would water it down because we had been campaigning. That's right. We sat right at the hard. back, and. Um, uh, the, here, the chief, chief political, um, Audrey Young, was sitting next to us. And the, all the, the journalists sort of, they, they get very protective. I mean, we've got passes for Parliament and we're quite entitled to be there. But the gallery journalists get very hissy at the idea of any outsiders sort of, how dare they stand in the back of the theatre or sit in the back of the theatre And we went down there because we knew we'd had to react very quickly and we'd we'd workshopped all these different sort of uh, what would come out. We expected it to be watered down. This was after months and months of campaign. Well, about three months of campaigning. No, it was, it was longer. It was right through the... I think it was we'd planned out like a two-year campaign, yeah. and this was after one year. We were pulling out every trick in our toolbox, um, <laughs> th- thanks to the supporters <laughs> who chipped into the campaign. Uh, so we were certainly keen to turn up to this event to find out what the Prime Minister had to say. Yeah, we wanted to know the model and to what degree we should... I mean, Cullen had... I mean, that proposed um, capital gains tax was to be the most extreme in the world. Yep. You know, to apply your marginal income tax rate, which was would be the, the highest rate, the the scope that it applied to the family high, had, a, I think, a million-dollar deduction. But And just the complexities and the fish hooks. That's uh, right, because we were they, they weren't even grandfathering, were they? It was... You'd have evaluation. Yep. It was just on all yep. the things. So we were there expecting what... What? How are they going to water it down, and what are we battling? And then, what happened? Well, she stood up and she said she would not be introducing a capital gains tax, which was a huge victory for us. But then she went further than that. She committed to never introducing any capital gains tax as long as she was prime minister, and that is really telling because she did not. She did not have to do that. Winston Peters couldn't have forced her to do that. That yeah. wasn't Winston. That was her reading the room. It was her reading the political environment. And our role in that whole debate was to change the political environment and turn capital gains tax into political poison. And, well, the results speak for themselves. We won that. Yeah. Yeah, we did. And, uh, I mean, they're certainly going to want to come back and have another bite at it because, you know, the stuff is like rust. We'll have to um, have to redefend our, our great tax system or largely great tax system. Um, again, well... In the meantime, what's your plan next? What are you? Um, what? Who have we lost you to? Uh, 
Greenpeace. No, no, they wouldn't like my position on animals. Uh, I'm heading overseas. I'm keeping a promise that I made, my, made to myself a long time ago, actually, which was to live frugally, uh, both you know through my career and save money so that I could spend some time in a semi-retirement. So I'll be heading to Latin America, specifically Chile, Argentina, Brazil, and Colombia. I want to spend a bit of time in Colombia. The cost of living is uh, very low, and some people would argue they've got better economic management than New Zealand. And I'll, I'll be traveling, but I might also try my hand at a bit of remote work. Uh, this is something that I think a lot of Kiwis are considering, uh, especially after COVID-19. Mm. And the options really do open up, especially for a young person like me. So I'll try my hand at that and see how I go. You're, um, you've always been sort of the libertarian arm. Um, I mean, obviously, we deliberately hire from across the political spectrum, but we tend to attract conservatives and libertarians, and you've generally been the libertarian in the office, um, particularly on the vaping stuff. I mean, you've really... In fact, you've been... you've you've. You've spoke at WHO things on that, haven't you? Yeah. It's been. It's my last day, Jordan. Can I vape in the office? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you cannot vape in the office. Um, but uh, maybe after five, maybe on Tuesday. <laughs> um, what sort of what took you there? Why? I mean, well, I, I can answer that quite easily. It it comes. It actually because that isn't student my, loans. I mean, fiscal. Well, I I think there is a link there. It, it, it's the same motivator that got me interested in the student loan issue, uh, which was the disproportionate effect that government policies uh, on tobacco and vaping products, for example, have uh, on the poor. So student loans, it's a regressive policy. It's funded by you know, average taxpayers to help the wealthy. Uh, tobacco taxes, they disproportionately hit the poor to fund yeah. Grant Robertson's projects. Uh, and then along comes something like vaping. Which, prevents, uh, which presents a reduced harm alternative to tobacco, but crucially from a taxpayer perspective, uh, it's, it's a way for people to not just quit the ciggies, but to quit the tax. Uh, and then the, inst- the instinct of the politicians is always to crack down. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I understand no one wants to be um, you know, caught in a cloud of blueberry vapour, uh, but I, I think it is. Yeah, that's, that's why you're not allowed to vape in the office, Louis. That's yeah, okay. <laughs> I, th- I think it is, well, firstly, firstly, the taxpayers' union's role to inject some rationality to the debate and approach these things from a taxpayer perspective, yeah. which no one else was doing. But also just personally, yeah, I am a bit of a contrarian, uh, and I do believe in freedom. I think if someone wants to smoke or vape, I think that is their, their prerogative. Yeah, I've, uh, th- you have convinced me on... We've opened my eyes to the fact on this one that if we tax tobacco like we taxed booze and what a bottle of wine was 150 bucks a bottle, the middle class would absolutely re- re- revolt. Of course. Yet we look down our noses at, let's be frank, the poorest of the poor that are left smoking. And there's a, there is a degree of tut-tuttedness about it. Um, on that, the second is, is that I mean, what is it? Four times the cost of smoking you pay in tax, and to, you know that, that. Yeah, it's it was three times the cost, but that that figure came from. Sorry, it's the figure was that smokers contribute three times more to the government coffers than what they cost the health system. That figure from, was from ten years ago uh, when taxes and yet were lower. It would have so, doubled from yeah, there. Yeah, you can imagine where it's gone from there. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've as as I say, I've um, you, you've definitely talked me round 
on that one. There's one more, I'm just going, there's one more unpopular view you have, which I do not under, uh, understand and I disagree with. Why do you hate libraries? <laughs> well, I don't hate I'm libraries. Oh, well, I just, on I, your comments about the Wellington I, Library, what might... I just think local councils get a little bit silly about their old libraries. Um, some of the new libraries that you see popping up, they're, they're flasher than any other government buildings. And these are council buildings. Councils don't have as much money as and the They government. seem to have less books in them. Yeah, well, exactly. What are, what are they using all the space for? I mean, <laughs> the, 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 one of the greatest things that happened in Wellington uh, was that they discovered the library was earthquake prone. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't just bowl it over. They're going to try to refurbish it. But the, the, the silver lining of that fiasco... <laughs> that library is... That's an... Oh, no, 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 I can't remember who designed that, actually. Yeah. The, the it's silver, iconic. Well, supposedly, but it's from the 80s, and it's pretty ugly to my eyes. But what the council discovered was that they don't actually have to own a library building. They can simply rent out little storefronts, pep it around the city, and not have to commit millions and millions or hundreds of millions into a building... And they can rent them out and scale it up according to demand. And you order a book and it comes in yeah. from a warehouse or something. Yeah, and most people are just there to use the Wi-Fi anyway. Uh, but this idea <laughs> that Wellington City space. Council and other councils across the country are investing hundreds of millions in a building uh, that th the form of a library is currently in question because we're in this mm. in-between stage between physical books and digital media. And yet... We are committing for 50, 60 years on some of these buildings. It's madness to me. Will you stay in the movement long term? I'm trying to, to execrate myself for as long as possible. I suspect that I will be sucked back in uh, quite quickly because you, I By am, movement, I, I, sorry, I mean public policy. And yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of, I guess you might call it the, the fiscal conservative movement or even the libertarian movement. Um, I suspect I will be... Uh, drawn back into debates, especially New Zealand debates, because that is my political instinct. Will you, will, will, would you stand for Parliament? I would stand for Parliament as a service for a party that I believed in, uh, but I would not stand for Parliament with the hope of being elected. I don't okay. think I don't think the life of an elected official is one for me. Well, well not really when the taxpayers' union's chasing after you. Well, well, no, of course, the taxpayers union, I would hope, would be, um, would be giving me hell every time I use my parliamentary credit card. But I, I'm not attracted to the compromises inherent in politics. Uh, and I, I think the real service, the, the, I, th I think there is a real service that can be done for anyone who's interested in politics, and that is to stand for a political party, but not for your own sake. Stand for a political party because you believe in the values of that political party. And guess what? Nine times out of ten, you're probably not going to get elected. But that's good. That's, that's what really deserves credit in New Zealand, is when it is, is actually sacrifice for values you believe in. And I don't think we give these people enough credit. When you started at the Taxpayers' Union, we had about 35,000 registered supporters. We've now got 180,000 registered supporters. Um, and, of course, as you know, we, if you don't open our email in three months, we, we kick you off the list. Um, extraordinary growth to be, uh, what, 1 in 21 adult New Zealanders uh, now not only opt in but open our emails. Who is our typical supporter now? Well, our supporters are taxpayers, and that might sound obvious, but I guess I, I can probably narrow that down. It's, th these are net, net taxpayers. These are people who, over the course of their lives, on balance, have contributed more uh, to the system than they've taken from it. Uh, that does mean they're typically a little bit older. Uh, I, th I think it's fair to say 
most of our, at least our um, financial supporters, are property owners. They pay rates. They're very interested in council issues yeah, for that reason. That's true. On social issues, you know, are they are they socially liberal, socially conservative? I, I, I actually think there's a pretty decent split between the two. And that's one of the reasons why you don't often see the taxpayers union come out on you know divisive social issues. We, we wouldn't like daylight savings, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's fundamental. To that's, <laughs> well, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't see us get involved in um, you know gay marriage or abortion debates or anything like yeah. that because our, our our supporters they they come from across liberal conservative. Uh, their well, one of their focuses, and it's the focus that we are primarily concerned with, is taxpayer issues. Mm. It's knowing that the money that they've sweated over uh, to pay in taxes is actually being used in a way that doesn't just deliver uh, value for money, but actually respects the efforts of the people who earned it. Louis, uh, it's been an absolute privilege um, to have you on staff for this long. The organisation is um, flourished under your leadership here in, uh, here in Wellington as our campaign's manager. Um, we obviously can't go into much detail, but um, thanks particularly of late for being such a big part of the uh, selection and recruitment process uh, for your replacement. Um, I can't wait to introduce him to uh, our, our members and supporters. But in the meantime... Um, Can I say something, Jordan? Of, oh, of course. By, by, well, uh, I've, by got, I've got... Uh-oh. I've, I've got a few bones to pick with. No, no. <laughs> I need to thank you uh, because it's been five years and I am confident that my replacement will come in here and find himself in very good hands. And it's not just you. It is you, Jordan, because you, uh, you provide so much energy for the organisation. But it's not just you because... I think your best quality and what makes you work so well with the Taxpayers' Union is that you build teams. And I can see that looking around the office. It's not just you, it's not just me. It's, um, it's our office manager, it's our researchers, uh, it's our revolving cast of interns that come in bright-eyed, uh, perhaps a bit naive, and come out keen critics of government waste. And it's for that reason that our campaigns manager will arrive and find himself in such a good position to take our organisation to even greater heights. Thank you, Louis. That's 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 very kind. Keep in touch, and um, obviously we're only a few years away from the ten year anniversary, uh, ten year ten years of the Taxpayers Union. What um, end of next year? And um, knowing where all the bodies bodies are buried, and with your sense of humour, I certainly hope if you do are keen on that remote work, you might be involved, perhaps, and at least assisting with some drafts of um, of of. We've got to do some sort of book or. Or something like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll be expecting your call, but if I'm on a, if I'm on a beach drinking pina coladas, I might just. Uh... I actually think that I, I do. I do honestly think, Louis, you would be. You know, you see in movies like in some like backwater uh, country in, in Latin America, there's some like old gringo. Uh, what, what's the America? What's the gringo? Gringo. Um, as a barman or something like that with some wacky or professional career and that they're now like doing some like, or a surf shop. I could see <laughs> you running just the most random thing in Central America, um, having had this, uh, had this career uh, for a taxpayers group well, it's and been, a likely in the bottom of the world. It's been eight years for me in Wellington, uh, so I'll be looking for... Uh, the inverse of whatever Wellington is. So whatever that is, whether it's Panama or Honduras, I'll be looking for it. 
Well, we wish you the best, uh, the best of luck, and uh, keep in touch. And Louis, thanks for being the voice for taxpayers. Thank you, and thank you to all of our wonderful supporters who've not just chipped in, but sent me messages in response to my newsletters. Um, like, like I said earlier, I can't respond to all of them, but I read pretty much all of them, and it makes my day. Thank you.